Welcome to My on Mondays, an explorative approach to the possessive my through narratives, art, and sound. Each Monday brings a new creation and unique perspective. My on Mondays is brought to you by Ming Studios, a contemporary art space and international artist residency program dedicated to the exhibition, experience, and exploration of arts and culture. Along with exhibiting artists from around the world, Ming also serves the community by hosting innovative programs including performances, workshops, screenings, readings, artist talks, and other cultural activities. For more information or if you'd like to participate in My on Mondays, you can visit our website at mingstudios.org. Hello and welcome to the 112th episode of Mayan Mondays. Today is December 25th, the calendar holiday for Christmas. But this is also a season of the convergence of different traditions. There's Christmas and Hanukkah, but also winter solstice and personal traditions such as remembrance of loved ones who are no longer with us or reflections on the end of a year. Today we have three pieces for you, each by a different artist, highlighting moments from their respective personal seasons. From Rebecca Evans, we have Bringing Light. Elizabeth Sharp Maqueda reads her piece, Asashoryu. And Cece Claymore gives us Dispensation of Snowflakes. Rebecca Evans writes The Difficult, The Heartful, The Guidebooks for Survivors. Her debut memoir in verse, Tangled by Blood, bridges motherhood and betrayal, untangling wounds, and restoring what it means to be a mother. She's a memoirist, essayist, and poet, infusing her love of empowerment with craft. She teaches high school teens in the juvie system through journaling and art projects. Rebecca is also a military veteran, a practicing Jew, a self-taught gardener, and shares space with four Newfoundlands and her sons. She specializes in writing workshops for veterans and those diving deep in narrative. She co-hosts Radio Boise's Writer to Writer show on Stray Theatre and does her best writing in a hidden cove beneath her stairway. Elizabeth Sharp Maqueda is the author of 13 books, including Edit Your Life and The Creative Year, 52 Workshops for Writers. She teaches writing for Harvard and Oxford and is the founder of the Book Year Writer's Circle. Her essay for this piece is an excerpt from the audiobook Awake with Asa Shoryu, published by Paul Drybooks in 2022. Cece Claymore is a writer, researcher, freelance editor, and part-time English professor. She's an emerging poet whose work has been included in the previous five anthologies published by The Cabin, as well as in The Panorama Project, a pandemic arts segment underwritten by the Idaho Press Tribune and Searle's Place. Cece lives in Boise, Idaho, where she loves supporting the arts, running in the foothills, and raising her two boys. Happy holidays, everyone, however you celebrate. I'm Rebecca Evans, and I wanted to share um, a couple pieces on the concept of bringing light, being light in the world, especially right now. It's our darkest season, I think, seasonally, but also in humanity. We're seeing so much darkness. And as a Jew, this is a time of year that we light candles. 
place menorahs and windowsills and try to bring more light and be more light. And so I wanted to share in honor of that celebration. This first piece is entitled, Despite Storms and Stray Bullets. Despite storms and stray bullets, they say there is no light without darkness. But I ask, how much darker can we become when active shooter drills override tornado training and still children shield beneath desks? Reminders of grandmothers fuddling babes behind fake stone walls as proud Supremas march center streets. And still, the grandmothers held their shamashim, lit candles and witness flames dance without breath or wind. And still, today, darkness snuffs and claws through slang and rap and followers who believe in elimination, discrimination, but fail to see a miracle or a faith so sturdy that still, no matter the night, we trust, we hold, we hold hope and each other up in prayer. We psalm our way through valleys and shadows and storms and strayed bullets. We follow our grandmothers and still we boldly place our menorahs ablaze in our sills. And this other piece is entitled Star Prayers. It's after Ashley M. Jones, and it is in honor of my little town that I live in of Star, Idaho. Star Prayers. God speaks to Star, Idaho. He asks for her safety. This town where Mormons and Jews nod a morning smile. Families offer a cup of sugar and watch for strangers from porch swings. Children freely play in front lawns or ride bikes on hot asphalt and bear no worry of zip-tie abductions bound by men with head bounties. Star streets hold names like Haven Crest, and it fills a safety net drapes the cities as mothers pull their children in wagons and daddies walk the dog. We leave notes. Thank you for the bread, the casserole, the clothes your son outgrew. God beckons angels, walk star roads beneath ink sky, and urge the teens back inside, and shelter them from dark energies seeping into cities too fast grown from the outside. God's a praying God, whispering over this little town, the no longer rural town, the not a city town, a place love survives and hate is frowned and Christmas lights twinkle on wolf tops alongside candles aflame on window panes. Awake with Asa Shoryu. One. I am awake. A siren woke me, and now I can't get back to sleep. So now I'm sitting up in the dark and stroking my sleeping dog, who has come home for Christmas with me. I can tell from the way her legs flicker that she is dreaming of chasing something. I do what I always do when awake at my childhood house. Go find my father. 
This night, I find him in the study, sitting on the green plaid chair and watching the computer. Lizzie, he cries, happy that someone else is awake with him in the early morning. You're just in time to see Sumo. Come sit. Do you want coffee? He ushers me into the chair where he has been sitting, fills me a mug from the French press, and then stands behind me, fidgeting. He drinks coffee all day and all night, and his hands shake from it. He could never be a surgeon. But he would probably never want to be. In this way, I differ from my father. He is something, in his case, an attorney and a dad, and he is content being so. I fear being anything, ever, because it might keep me from being all the other things I might one day want to be. What I see on the computer screen surprises me. Two enormous Japanese men with hair tucked into puffy brioche-like buns slamming into each other. It takes me a long time to realize that none of the commentary is in English. Dad, I ask, how do you understand what's happening? If you see enough sumo, you begin to get things straight. Looky here. Watch what happens. One of the men is bowing around a circle, his diaper-thong loincloth riding straight up the crack of his colossal buttocks. I'm embarrassed to be awake with my dad in the middle of the night, watching obese, mostly naked men wrestle. But it is clear that my dad doesn't mind at all. He has begun narrating. Look at how the winner helps his opponent up. Now he's bowing, that's tradition. From the speakers, I hear applause getting louder and louder. And I ask who all the people are cheering for. Pay attention here, he says. All the noise is because Asa Shoryu is in the next match. Rewind. Twenty years earlier in the same house, I am awake. I am five years old and awake in the early morning with my dad. He reads the paper. I rest on the sofa and look up at the ceiling, spying a cockroach directly above me. I already know a few things about cockroaches from school. They do not have brains, but basal ganglia. This is why they can live partially smushed. Their only imperative is to stay alive, to win the civilization race. Dad, I ask, will it fall on me? Of course not, he says, and that minute it does, as if it heard and let go. I want to tell my father this. Although you are not immortal like the cockroaches, you are at least in better shape than the sumo wrestlers. But I do not say this. Certain things are better to say to yourself than to your dad. Instead, I kiss him on the forehead and go back to bed. 2. Remember those mornings, girl. Remember them. And one day, you'll sing them back to yourself like that Hamlin Piper sang his past to those rats. Soon your nights will have their own sleepwalking. Soon you will have a daughter and will wake each night in stark panic, dreaming of losing her. You will trace paths through your house, milk full and awake at night, in the early morning, in the dark dad hours when Asa Shoryu wrestles. Your dad will lose his mother in February, exactly a month after you give birth to a daughter. 
and it is sort of a transfer of souls, isn't it? Between an infant girl and a dying woman who share the same genes? Will they high-five on their ways in and out? So remember how, once upon a time at your childhood house, you were a daughter, just a daughter. You were so much somebody's daughter, with your old bedroom and your dog trailing behind your every step. You were your sleepless father's daughter. Three. This is who fathers are in fairy tales. The kings who protect their daughters from having any sort of fun. One king hires soldiers to spy on his daughters, all twelve of them, by tracking them down to a secret lair where they dance all night, ravaging their shoes, a habit that depletes their father's purse even more than any of their other prince's habits. That king, as a reward for this information, forces his eldest daughter to marry the soldier Snoop, as if she were her father's currency. Or else fathers are humble peasant men who build fences and beds and who fetch lettuces, rampion, arugula, and Rapunzel for their pregnant wives, doddering into the wrong garden and being forced, by which cleverer than he, to make a trade for the produce. His daughter, perhaps. And in Beauty and the Beast, the man loses his daughter again. He can give up his life to the beast, or he can give up his daughter's life. And when the daughter is quicker on the draw, the father shrugs as if to say, well, I'll get the check next time. My father is like none of these men. In fairy tales, fathers get that daughters are tricky. We traffic in half-truths. Sons will say what they mean and tell you where they're going. You might tell them not to go and they'll go anyway, but at least they'll tell you. But daughters are made up of secrets. And it is a father's job to crack those secrets. For the girl's own good, of course. But what if it is the other way around? 4. When I return to my parents' house for the Christmas holidays, it becomes clear to me that my father never sleeps. Not really. He falls asleep against his will in the early evenings, but then throttles awake throughout the night, wrestling with his work, with himself, or with whatever questions plague men after midnight. He always wakes by 2 a.m. This is convenient, because the sumo tournaments take place at that time, and my father can watch them live on the computer. The matches flicker in the night, lasting on average a few seconds, a minute at most. He goes downtown to his office at 6, 7 a.m., and what he does in between sumo and work? I have no idea. Works the crosswords, naps, munches on popcorn, watches Asashoryu rise to the top of the charts. My father likes many things about Asashoryu, his discipline and skill, and also his name, which translates to Blue Dragon of the Morning, and which has that strange sound ryu at the end, giving whiplash to an American tongue. I think my father also likes that Asashoryu is an outsider, Mongolian in a Japanese sport, and yet he keeps winning. He is a prodigy of sorts. At age 23, Asashoryu became a yokozuna the highest rank in sumo.
But what my father likes most about Asashoryu is his reputation as Sumo's bad boy. In 2003, Asashoryu is scolded and disqualified from a match because he pulled an opponent's top knot like a boy pulling a girl's pigtails to get attention in school. It was a childish move, but he was a child. In 2007, Asashoryu is suspended from competing because he got spotted playing soccer when he was supposed to be resting from an injury. The first time in Sumo's 2,000-year history that a Yokozuna is suspended. Mongolian liar! Headlines scream. Asa scoundrel! Websites pun. Makita! Cartoon bubbles have him admit. I fucked up, I lose. From the Japanese word makeru to fuck up. Makita is past tense. We, incidentally, are maketas. My dad is at once thrilled and appalled at Asa Shoryu's suspension. My father would never have made such a JV move. But Asa Shoryu is in his 20s, and my father is older, and who knows what my father would have done at Asa Shoryu's age. At my age. Asa Shoryu takes risks my father never would have chanced. Asa Shoryu will have peaked in his 20s while my father is chugging uphill slowly, conserving energy, and poised to live a long, long time. Why he became interested in sumo mystifies me. Why I became interested in his interest in sumo is even less clear to me. I played sports in high school but have never liked watching them. I sleep through the night. But in the days leading up to Christmas, I find myself napping during the afternoons and staying awake at night with Dad and Asa Shoryu. Five. My father drove a taxi when he was a young man. His college degree prepared him to become a mathematics professor, but he graduated during the Vietnam War, and so he drove a cab while he waited to be drafted. The war ended. A year later, with his draft number burned forever into his mind. He found a high school that needed a math teacher, and he lived on campus for three years, drawing Euclidean figures on chalkboards and saving up money. On campus, you spend nothing. You have food, shelter, toilet paper, and your weekends are pre-subscribed to dorm duty. My father lived in the dorm and got along very well with the boys as he knew a great deal about M.A.S.H., which the boys watched. And he pretended not to recognize the smell of marijuana, which the boys smoked. I know all this. I know this, too. After college, but before teaching, my father wrote in a letter to his own father that he was not going to get a job teaching math or going to law school or battling his way through academia or doing any of the other tasks for which his degree had prepared him. Instead, he wanted to wonder and test his skills to survive. My 21-year-old father wrote, If I don't do it now, I will never know. Your survival was tested growing up, and you know. But my brothers and I have never had to take that risk. Now I want to do it. His Ukrainian-descended father, once a 19-year-old coal miner, now a middle-aged scientist, scoffed. What is the point of suffering, he wrote back sensibly, when your mother and I worked this hard to make a life that would keep you three boys safe and out of suffering? 
We did the suffering for you. Now your generation has evolved past it. Get a job, Mike, he said, and the conversation ended. After teaching, but before I was born, my father moved on to law. Yet when I imagine him in those days, before he had a daughter, I see him driving strangers through city streets, spinning the wheels in his eternal taxi. I imagine a ferry conductor, a raft man, a pathmaker who tamed himself before I existed. He is a man of great presence, and yet I see him in the great silence of fatherhood. I decide in my twenties that I wish to understand my father better. So I visit Washington, D.C., where he lived fresh out of law school, his hair still exuberantly red, his book pages still starchy. I visit the bakeries where he lunched, sampling the sandwiches, he described. I stand in the snow at the base of his old driveway, which twists like a cartoon villain's beard down the suburban hillside. The window shades are drawn, so no wrong figures can replace the life that I have compiled and imposed upon this small gray frame. A light turns on upstairs. I walk downtown, near the office where he worked, the home of his first job at a desk. I wonder, how will he think of himself as he ages? How will he characterize the him in his life? Is a young father newly married? Or a math teacher, trying to get high school potheads to care about numbers? Or a mischievous teenager with a pocket full of chocolate slipped to him by his mother to sustain him through church? I search his local library, the empty lot where his bank used to be, the houses of several friends. I search the park where he took me as a child, pausing to wait for him on the swings. I try to look up his old lovers to give me some sense of him as he had been, but the only one I find is my mother. At evening, I leave my undertaking, tired and with aching feet. I turn a corner and read a map, wishing for a place to rest. I decide to look in one final place, in the cemetery. My father has always admired the austere beauty of graves. Graveyards are great places to walk, with their short, irreverently clipped grass, and my father dearly loves to walk. When my sisters and I were children, he took us to cemeteries to make grave rubbings. I start to enter the gates, but cannot. Now, as an adult, I fear the silence that wafts among the dead. So I stand on the curb and raise my hand for a taxi. Few taxis are out, but across the street, one stops. I see the silhouette of the driver. As he rolls the window down, I make out the bright red hair of a very young man. The driver doesn't call to ask where I'm going, and I don't tell him. He watches me for a long moment, and I know that he recognizes me. My crossing light is not green, and he shakes his head. I run for him anyway. I need to see him closely, to know his voice, and to see that he's happy. I wave my hands so that he will understand what I want, so that he will wait. He winks and keeps driving.
6. During the holidays, when there is nobody at his office, my father is at a loss for what to do. One morning after Christmas, I have some errands to run. I need a book for school, a new toothbrush, a costume for a New Year's Eve party. I invite my father, and he gladly accepts, and the errands become a full-day affair that includes a drive to a landfill and a stop at a barbecue restaurant whose kitchen smokes and flames and reminds me of hell. At the restaurant, my father overorders, and we take four pounds of meat home to feed the dogs. At the costume shop, he buys several Mardi Gras masks. At Walmart, he buys a four-foot squishy magenta caterpillar. It has happy plastic eyes and curly cue plastic eyelashes and a stitched-on smile. He buys some artificial rose petals, too. He buys and buys and buys. When we arrive back home, he gives my mom the caterpillar and tosses a handful of the fake rose petals on the living room floor. Mike, my mom says warningly, as the dogs begin to lick the petals. My father shrugs and picks them up and puts them back into the bag. Before going to bed, I spy the pink caterpillar in the laundry room. It has been squished on top of the cabinets, in the plastic crates with the dog's toys. That night, I stay awake until dawn on the phone with the man who will become my husband. I tell him about the caterpillar, and for some reason I almost begin to cry. My phone battery runs out and cuts us off. The next morning, I receive a voice message from him, saying he does not hate it when my phone cuts us off. Not at all. But instead, he loves that we'd rather keep on talking and risk the cutoff than lose whatever seconds we might have left. 7. There is an overbelly and an underbelly to all fathers. The overbelly is his marriage to my mother, his four children, his house behind a gate, his line of black and navy suits that he wears each day to the office. The underbelly is that he separates his black and navy socks into opposite parts of his sock drawer and gets flustered if anybody mixes them up. The underbelly is that he hides chocolate candy in his sock drawer. The day I learned this was the same day I learned not to mix up his socks. The overbelly is his facility with numbers, the infinite city maps he keeps in his head, the fact that he always, always, always wins at cards even though I've never known him to initiate a card game. The underbelly is his sleeplessness, how his nights last forever and he fills them with sumo, and how he bites his nails when he's nervous before trial or on the way to the airport. His smile is both over and underbelly. So is his punctuality. It is overbelly in that he is always the first to arrive for meetings and events. It is underbelly in that the day of my wedding, my father and I drove together and got caught in traffic, and my father panicked at the thought that we might be late. And then what? I wondered. What wedding starts without the bride? It is underbelly that he does not eat when my mother is out of town. Or he eats but only hard-boiled eggs, labeled in a plastic bowl in the refrigerator, and pre-popped popcorn from a bag. He drinks coffee from a French press. The pomegranate seeds of his underworld are few and unnourishing, but somehow they sustain him, 
It is Overbelly that he makes a lot of money, and Overbelly, too, that he spends it in excess. But it is Underbelly that money means little to him, which is why he always has too much. Money for him is something to shed, an ugly, guilty thing that is best given away. Sumo swells one belly into the other. Once I am asked in an elevator in the town where I grew up, in a building near the building where my dad works downtown, if it is true that my dad has begun sumo wrestling. It is true, and it is not true. 8. To become a sumo wrestler, you must fill your belly with beer and rice, starting when you are young so that by adulthood your stomach will have stretched to accommodate all the food you will need. In sumo, the body is master, not the mind. The only just comparison is a pregnant woman, first trimester, when the alien enters and needs to eat. Like horses, sumo wrestlers live in heya, training stables. And also like horses, they are fed, dressed, exercised, according to a traditional code that will help them win. They wake early, at 5 a.m., to exercise and fast. They fast for hours, so that by the time they eat lunch, their body is in fat-storing starvation mode. For their two daily meals, sumo wrestlers eat chankonabe, single-pot soups of fish, meat, and vegetables, and they eat bowl after bowl of rice until they cannot hold any more. Then they nap, so the calories will quickly become fat. Like horses, their manes are ceremoniously tended. Simply to fix a sumo wrestler's hair requires a ten-year apprenticeship. When a sumo career ends, the wrestler must sacrifice his hair. His topknot is cut off in a ritual inside the sumo ring. Depending on the wrestler, over 200 people may have the privilege of cutting off a strand of the great wrestler's mane before the stable master makes the final cut. Like horses, these wrestlers are bred for sport, father to father to father. I'm beginning to think about fatherhood, how it is impossible to comprehend fatherhood in a spouse without first deferring back to one's own dad. Until I met my husband, it was impossible for me to comprehend loving a man who did not closely resemble my father. Now it's impossible to comprehend loving something enough to not sleep for it. This will change. 9. In the middle of the night, I sort through the clutter of my life at my parents' house, winnowing down to the few things I will take when I move. I have finished school, and it is time to go. I have a mind full of manuscripts, and a belly distending not with beer and rice, but with new life. My father walks past my room while I am packing my books. His thin mouth frowns with wrinkles and exhaustion. I follow him into the kitchen. He sets a stack of mail on the kitchen counter and turns to make coffee, and in doing so, his elbow knocks all the mail onto the floor. I help him pick it up. The tired look hasn't gone from his eyes, but he is smiling again. He says, Lizzie, take care never to be really good at what you do, because it means that you're never done. I say that I will do my best. 
Are you having a happy life? He asks. I am, I say, and I mean it. Are you? Oh, he says, with a deep laugh. Very happy. I've had such a blessed, happy life. Been so lucky with my family, in this job I love. Working with such honorable colleagues, so lucky. I hope you are this lucky. So do I, I say. Then I ask, how was your day today? So busy. And tomorrow will be busier. And Friday, too. But, he says, reaching into his shirt pocket, here is some disappointing news. I unfold the piece of paper he hands me. It is a spreadsheet, created on Excel and filled in with my father's crabbed geometric handwriting. On the left, vertical, are sumo wrestlers' names, along with their age, height, weight, country of origin, rank. Horizontally across the top are their names again, and my dad has filled in the results of each match in the squares where names meet. Asa Shoryu lost, Dad says. Now he's tied for second with nine other people. Who beat him? A man named Hakuho. An old-timer? No, very young, but already a Yokozuna. He just became one at age 22. Asa is no longer the only Yokozuna. He gives me a kiss and says that he is getting up in two hours and heads off to his bedroom. The door thuds behind him. My dog looks confused. She has been following me from room to room, as if I were trying to trick her by sleeping somewhere else. It is hours past her bedtime. 10. My father worries about failure to do his duty, and I worry about sleepwalking through life and missing things. My father listens and always says the correct things. I listen as well as I can, but then I slip and ask the sort of questions that poke holes, like a twig fiddling a sweater. And I look for things to unravel. What we share, my father and I, is that we both want something that lies eternally outside the halo of our grasp. Whereas most other successful adults I know act as if they already have gotten everything they ever wanted. A job and a family and freedom and security. Most adults at my father's age may rest fatly on their laurels, top roosters in the small coop they have carved out of the world. But not my father. Men like my father are either silent and wish to speak, roguish and wish to settle, settled and wish for freedom, overfed and wish for the scrappiness and hunger of their twenties. Any way you frame it, these men want. Want is something I can understand. Desire involves something unraveling in a corner, and being a writer involves always having something unraveling in a corner. When I watch my father watch Sumo, I wonder what it is exactly that he wants from his life. My father loves maps, math, art, wine, and Sumo. He loves gushing about his wife and holding people's babies. He loves his family. And to support them, he works full-time, overtime, out of town for weeks at a time. My father taught me about achievement and commitment and love. But I grew up interested only in love. Love and writing. And I knew 
always, that writing is really only a way to love the world full-time. In my late twenties, I was perched and ready to fly, moving from the city of my childhood into a new city, a new decade. My dreams were shifting, lightening. I had shed the heavy sleep, the dreams of myself as a precarious block in a towering legacy where I could fall in fear and disappoint the father I loved. I could fuck up. Makita, Makita, like Asa Scoundrel, but without ever having peaked. I told myself sternly, you have a choice. Figure out what you want from life and either stay asleep to it or wake yourself up. So I ran through the security gates of 30, and the metal detectors caught my steely poison dreams and forbade me from carrying them through. What I carried instead were my dog, and my husband, and my husband's dog, and my laptop filled with 12 years' worth of stories. A few black dresses, a teapot, a library card, a small collection of expensive hats bought for me by my father. 11. In a kingdom across the sea, Asa Shoryu steps down. He is no longer a Yokozuna because he got in trouble again for beating up a waiter again. And the only honorable thing to do is leave the sport where he has ruled for seven years. This is better than seppuku, but the same principle. He will play soccer uncurbed. He will be paid to advertise products that are being promoted on sandwich boards at the sumo matches of wrestlers that once he easily dominated. Nearly 400 people will have the honor of cutting his top knot. My father has fallen asleep. In the middle of the night, there is the television, shining, noctilucent, and my father snoring on the green carpet on the study floor. The room, incidentally, where my mother's dogs discovered that the carpet was the same color as grass. The poo room, my husband called it once. My husband wakes earlier and earlier. My baby shifts and hums all night, waking me. My father catches a snore in his throat. He will stop breathing eventually. They all will. Hard to imagine at age 30 that one day I will too. The parade of sumo will go on for centuries. Men in diapers training like horses in stables. New rulers rise and will fall for those who are awake to watch. The sun goes down earlier and earlier, lengthening night into something intolerable. The twelve dancing princesses get caught by their father. I am awake. The Dispensation of Snowflakes The Dispensation of Snowflakes, a baptism, sky-sprinkling earth, returning to wells and to waves and rivers, quenching deserts and eventually flooding streams. The Dispensation of Snowflakes is communion under a dome of cloud. Open your mouth and catch hosts straight from the heavens, you being of earth, you with your own tributaries. Swallow and feel as grace runs through the body, holiness in an intricate speck, landing on your eyelash, melting down your face, dissolving on your tongue, running cool down the throat. The sacraments celebrate you. 
the sacraments are a welcoming. A rejoining of us to our elements, just as a sea welcomes back a bit of itself during an Atlantic blizzard, water to water, water to earth, God descending in a star field of ice crystals, the divine re-entering bodies, melting and leavened on the tongues of the faithful, most whom are small, and in schoolyards. You are called to be like them. Heeding the call or no, beads of benediction will sparkle on heads and hair, the elements sending us into our silence of falling snow, elements also the praise of raging rivers, christened by their own source. Thank you for joining us today. We'll be back next Monday. Tune in. Thank you.